Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Hui Huin of The Alabama Woodworker, and I'm joined by my friends Sean Walker of Simple Cove. Hey, fellas. How's it going? Doing well. And Guy Dunlop of Guy's Woodshop. Hello, Hui. Hello, Sean. Hello, Good Guy. Good evening. This podcast is intended to answer your questions, the woodworking community, and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. We also have a Patreon campaign, and if you'd like to show your support, we are simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Please go to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you'd like to show your support. And please stick around towards the end of the show. We're going to briefly talk about what each of us have going on in our own shops. So let's get right into it. Guy, what is your first question? Hey, guys. Jonas from Germany here. Since you're always looking for questions, here's another one. As a weekend woodworker who doesn't get much time in the workshop, I regularly get the problem that milled stock doesn't get touched for several days before I can continue with the, pro the project. Right now, I'm working on an outdoor table made from European oak, and there might be a few weeks between milling the boards and actually assembling the table. I have heard of the solution to use plastic bags or shrink wrap but that doesn't really work for seven foot boards. How do you handle stuff like that? There's a lot of different ways to handle stuff like that, Jonas. I'm going to give you one. Um, I would stack and sticker it and seal the ends of the boards. If it's got, it might be a couple weeks and you're worried about it warping, you can seal the ends with something like just like uh, shellac. Mm. So that, that does help. What do you do, uh, Sean? Uh, hmm. If I can't get to the board, I leave it thick and then mill it when I need to use it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not, not thick, thick, but you know, probably leave about an eighth of an inch and then take it down when I need to use it. But if I have to take it to its final thickness, I have tried shellacking it. Like you said in the past, um, it's, you know, it takes a lot of time to do depending on how much lumber you have is, you know, time intensive and whatnot. So, uh, I, I just, if I know that I can't get to it, I just leave it a little thick and then mill it down to the final thickness when I'm going to use it. That's kind of what I, what I do if I yeah. absolutely can't avoid it. Yeah. I'm trying to keep it thick for as long as a little thicker for as long as I can. For instance, I had eight walnut boards in my shop that right now that I had done an initial milling and I left it an inch thick and I did not edge joint them knowing that it would be a little while before I would be able to get to them. Now I'm actually able to get to them. So I'll be doing the final milling that becomes a little bit difficult. And I'm curious if either of you have a solution for situations where you might start on joinery and then you end up not finishing joinery for like maybe two weeks later. Is there anything that you can do in that situation? I, I suspect that it's kind of, you just kind of have to bite the bullet and get it to final milling and do as much as you can. Yeah. Right. Boards that long. I mean, some smaller, smaller project pieces are easy enough to, to stack and sticker. And I actually have some uh, 25 pound plates. Hmm. I have a couple of them, and I put those on top of them to keep them flat. It actually works really well. But with seven-foot boards, you really can't do that. Yeah. Uh, what I would do is I would I would sticker them, but I'd also stack them. And you basically, and if you've done some join around, obviously uh, you haven't put anything together yet. You may have just performed the join around so the boards can still, the, it'd still be disassembled. Yeah. Stack and sticker it. That's about all you can do. Yeah. And pray for the best. Um, yeah. Even if you're going to do that, you can still do, you can still mill it once and then mill it again, wait like a week and mill it again. And the first time you do it, it's going to release a lot of the tension and a lot of the moisture that was there. Right, right. So the second time you mill it, they should be more stable. Yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> The yeah. one thing that I do, and I know this may not help anyone, but this is what I do. Um, if I am in the middle of a project and I have lumber that's milled and I know that I'm cutting joinery on it or something like that, like sliding dovetails or whatever, um, I have a mini split and I will leave it at that same setting until I get back out in the shop and finish working on the piece. 
just so that there's no fluctuation in humidity or the temperature. Mm -hmm. It's not too crazy because I leave my garage door closed. So I'll leave it in that state and then, you know, and then go back out there in a couple of weeks and then just with it stickered, just start working on it again and just hope that that helps a little bit. Um, That's kind of what I would do. Yeah. Yeah. You just kind of want to get to it as soon as you can. So you're not running the, running the dehumidify on your AC for forever. Right. Yeah. But it's a mini split. It's low powered. It's an insulated garage. It's not too bad. Um, But that's kind of what I want to do. And when I'm in the middle of something um, Mm -hmm. is just leave it at the same temperature and get back out there the next weekend or the weekend after. And hopefully it's not moved too much, but if it does, it's not going to move too much to where I can't, you know, can't use the piece. Typically if it cups too bad, then I'll just chalk it up to not having being a hobbyist woodworker with not enough time and mill up another board. Yeah. Mm. Well, <laughs> yeah, I get it. It happens. Yep. Yep. All right. Well, I hope that helps. Okay. Sean, you got the next question, buddy. That's right. Here we go. This is from Joshua. I'm a hobbyist woodworker with a full-time job to support my hobby, and I'm lucky in the fact that people are asking me to make things that I want to make. With the urban lumber, I am really enjoying the wild, crazy figure that comes with non-commercial trees, crotch grain, especially the randomness of pallets, everything from cedar to white oak and an occasional exotic species. My question, since we are all woodworkers, is how much would you spend to not buy commercial lumber? As an example, I purchased my 14-inch bandsaw, 6-inch joiner, 10-inch planer used for $400. The chainsaw and the chainsaw mill cost $130. Am I crazy? Joshua. Well, the fact that you're asking woodworkers on woodworking podcasts that love dealing and buying lumber, no, you're not crazy. You're the opposite in our eyes. Um, I mean, we we all spent a good amount of money to have our tools to be able to mill up this lumber so that we're not having to go and buy pre-milled lumber at the big box store that is going to limit you and it's not high quality and you're, you know, it, yeah, there, there's more selection. You have more control over the, the lumber process, the project and everything from start to finish by being able to mill your own lumber. So no, you're not crazy. And that's just, that's the path that every woodworker takes for the most part. If there's something that you build like outdoor stuff, obviously you may not, you may just stick with buying it from, you know, lumber suppliers and whatnot. But woodworkers that build furniture uh, and stuff like that, yeah, we, um, we're we going to spend the money to buy that stuff. Because if you think about it, you know, buying it at a big box store, you're limited to, what, half a dozen at most different species. You're limited on the thicknesses. Um, and, yeah, when, when you're able to buy that rough lumber, you're going to be saving a lot of money, typically, uh, non-pandemic prices. Um, you're going to be saving a lot of money. Um, and you're going to have total control over grain selection, uh, the lumber you buy, different different thicknesses. It's just from A to Z, a, a, a way better experience being able to control that and buying your own rough lumber and milling it. Uh, you're going to have total control from the very beginning. Now, that doesn't mean that I won't buy from places like Woodcraft. They, they oftentimes, my local Woodcraft, will have excellent deals on lumber. Like I bought some genuine mahogany from them for like $3 a board foot a couple of years ago. Even if I wanted to uh, buy that somewhere else, I couldn't get that locally. I'd have to buy it online, pay for shipping, and that's going to be mm-hmm. well over $3 a board foot for that stuff. So it was it was a really good deal. And then, you know, the other, the, I say the other day, the other year, about eight months ago, I bought some bird's eye maple from the local Woodcraft I can't get that anywhere else. It was also around that $3 to $4 a board foot. So I was able to buy a few boards of that to, uh, to use for boxes and some smaller pieces, but I'm totally not against buying it at places like Woodcraft because of the selection they have, if the price is reasonable. But I, you know, for the most part, I'm milling my own lumber, buying my own rough lumber. It just allows me to have more control, more options um, from the very beginning to the end of the project than buying pre-built or pre-milled stuff from big box stores or lumber lumber stores that's my uh feelings on the matter um guy what are your thoughts on buying pre-milled versus rough well i i rarely buy pre-milled i always buy rough lumber mm-hmm. for the exact reason you mentioned sean you have more control over it one of the things that that, that that's in that question i i'm i think is he's asking you know should i spend money on 
I think he's talking about milling his own lumber, like cutting it from logs. Yep. Yep. And for me, no, I don't want anything to do with it. There are other people, you know, like uh, a good example is Matt Cremona who goes and finds logs and he's got a trailer for it and he brings them home and slabs them and does all that because he gets enjoyment out of it. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't get any enjoyment out of it. I look at that as just hard labor. <laughs> that it's, yeah. it's something I don't want to do. Mm -hmm. So if you get enjoyment out of it and it's a hobby or even if it's your profession, mm -hmm. you know, I say go for it. One of the guys at work is, is really into all that stuff. He's building uh, a lot of the things that Cremona built, like the, the, the trailer with the log beam on it to get it on. He's got a big trailer and he built all that stuff and he's going to get logs and I, I think he's going to be getting a, a, a bandsaw mill pretty soon. But yeah. uh, because he enjoys it. I just look at him and go, you're crazy, dude. <laughs> <laughs> here's, here's, how, here, here's, here's how I buy lumber. I go, pick up the phone and I go, bing, 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 bing. Uh, Frank Miller Lumber, yeah. Is Carrie there? Okay, yeah. Okay, I need this, this, and this. Oh, you can deliver it Tuesday? Great. Thank you. Bye. Mm -hmm. And that's how I get my lumber because that's all I want to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I just I just want it to show up. So, Hui? Yeah, milling and drying your own lumber is a whole nother animal, a whole nother aspect of woodworking, which it is woodworking. Don't get me wrong. It, it's an important part of it. And it's something that I prefer to bypass and actually pay a little bit of a premium to have somebody properly dry it. We have a lot. And I think, Guy, you experience a lot of this. I'm pretty sure, Sean, you have too, but you might not have spoken as much about it. But there are a lot of backyard millers that we have here in, in, in North Alabama. And they're typically folks that have bought or have a... Sawmill that they basically get these down trees from tree services that drop them off. They turn them into mulch. One one that I know of is is Eager Beavers. It's that's the name of the company. They make mulch, and then uh, the owner bought us a, uh, a wood miser, and he predominantly makes a lot of cedar, but he does sell a good bit of hardwood as well. But one major thing that I've noticed about uh, his hardwood is that it. He sells it at, my opinion, an inappropriate price. He's selling it at a, at a price point that I would expect fully dried or kiln dried lumber to be at. And I just, and I probably shouldn't have even said eager beavers, but the, but they admit it. They admit that, no, they fully admit the fact that it's like no, it hasn't. It has not been dried. It's been you know, it's pretty much wet. Uh, you know, if you ask them, they're not going to say that it's kiln dried. And if you ask them how long it's been out cut, they said they'll probably tell you a couple months because they're trying to get rid of it as fast as they can. I just I, I, I don't have use for that just because I don't have the space to dry it. You know, I, I in the past, I have bought, uh, I don't know, 200, 300 board foot of, of cherry that ended up just. I just couldn't use it. it. It took way too long to dry. And then by the time it was dry, it was just, I needed that space. So I ended up giving it to a whole bunch of friends and selling it off. It just was not very useful for me uh, because by the time you actually get to it, get to use it uh, before that ends up even happening, you need that space. I ended up just needing yeah. that space. And so for me, it just, it, it, when you start milling lumber on your own, it, it if you don't have the real estate, which a lot of us don't, if you don't have the real estate to so do it, some people, some people do, some people and, do, and that's that's the thing. I mean, if if all that, if all the stars are aligned properly, and it's something you want to do, I say go for it, man. Absolutely, it. but I'll, I'll tell you, man. For me, I, I have done it. I did have a chainsaw mill. I kind of got into it. Oh man, it is hard work. It is. It's intense. It's like that um, becomes the hobby, and not building. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. But that's cool. And if that, that's, that's your thing, you should do it. And if you're getting enjoyment out of it, then that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's it. but for me, I just, I, I'm, I'm like you, 
guy I, I, I call the places that have already gotten it dry. Yeah, we've got a bunch of local people here too. And a couple of them, you know, actually have kilns and stuff. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, the, I, I, they don't know what the hell they're doing. And the, the, the wood is not dried properly, even in the kiln. And it's not graded properly. You're yep. they, they're trying to charge, you know, select and better prices for number two common boards because they don't know what the difference is. And it's 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 just a, a nightmare. So the place I buy from has been around for you know like a hundred years and they're mm-hmm. a very well respected lumber yard. Yeah. And, yeah the, uh, the, the people there know what the hell they're doing. So that's why that's why I use them. The place where I get lumber, rough lumber, he doesn't charge different grades. It's just all the same price. So I, but of course, you know, you don't want to pick through all the good stuff and leave nothing but crap for the next guy. But it, it's you know, it's it's pretty amazing. However, he only has a few species, but it's it's awesome being able to do pick whatever I want at the all at the same price. Yeah. yeah, cool. Well, Joshua, let us know what you think. Um, good luck with cutting those cherry logs and hickory logs and. And uh, yeah, if you enjoy it and you have the tools, have at it. All right. With that, uh, I've got the next question. This is from Mark. Good morning, gents. I hope this finds you well. Thanks for the great show. So two questions, one related to the other. I'm losing access to my current workshop, a two-car garage. Renting commercial space is very expensive. So any other suggestions for finding a space for my workshop would be appreciated. I'm only looking for 400 square feet or so. And then the second part of this is because of number one, I'm considering joining a community makerspace. What are your pros and cons behind that? So this is actually, believe it or not, something that I did look into, oh gosh, maybe about six, seven years ago. So we have a, it's not a makerspace, but it's an artist's space. It's called Low Mill and it used to be an old paper mill here in Huntsville. It's a... It was at one point abandoned for a very long time, and then a bunch of artists invested in buying that building. Damn, and, uh, yeah, well, they renovated. They did a great <laughs> job. They renovated it. They uh, one of the things one of the things about that building though is is they rent out certain spaces for different artists, uh, photographers. Some people even have their office space there. I think they have like a wedding planner there and. They've got people that uh, uh, do baked goods, and there's a restaurant there. There's a place that serves tea. There, I think I said photographers, different artists, uh, record shop, a guy who makes guitars. Uh, he's an absolutely amazing woodworker, and he rents a space there. And uh, you might have a space like that available to you. I would caution against a community maker space. So I. I I, I kind of categorize them differently. I, I see a community. Yes, a com- maker- there's a community makerspace, so it's like a big place where you know there's one table saw, mm-hmm. maybe two, mm-hmm. one band saw, maybe two. So everybody's got to share the machines. Right. The problem I've had because I've been to some of these, and I used to go to one before I had my own shop is that every time I stepped up to a t- machine, it was hit or miss as whether or not it was calibrated, properly set up, if there was something wrong with it. I mean, there was always, uh, here's a great in- example. I needed a hollow chisel mortiser. And at the time, I did have my own uh, workshop and I, uh, most of the tools, but I didn't have a hollow chisel mortiser. I wanted to use one and I knew that this makerspace had it. And one of them didn't work, and the one that did work barely worked. And I struggled the whole time to try to get it to work for me. So much so that by the end of it, I only got, I don't know, half the mortises that I needed to get done. And then the rest of them, I just went home, used uh, my drill press, and I chiseled them out. When you're paying, and a lot of times it's really not that expensive for these maker spaces, uh, all things considered. But it becomes not so much a monetary issue as a frustration and time issue. That was my case. 
So that was a, a con. Now, the pro behind that is that they're not that expensive and, you know, rent's relatively cheap because it's shared equipment. But when you deal with shared equipment, you know, you deal with some other person that might not have treated that tool very well or did not take care of it after they were done. Uh, so that might be a con, right? So the pro is relatively inexpensive. Con is you know, hit or miss in terms of whether or not the tools are treated pro properly. I myself was thinking about renting a space of my own in an artist community. And I thought that would have been neat. Um, and at the time, you know, now I looking back, it was better idea for me to just have my own space because, you know, I'm not paying rent, I'm paying a mortgage and, you know, I actually own the property and That's equity right. into my home. Right. So guy, I, I believe, don't y'all have like a community maker space, but then don't you also have like artists residency type, rental areas as well in Indy? Yep. There's both. Okay. I've, I've never really looked into it because I really wouldn't want to share a shop for the, the, the reasons you mentioned, Wade. Mm -hmm. but I know that some of them where mm -hmm. they do share machinery, they've got a guy on staff. That's all he does is go around the machines and make sure they're calibrated and everything works right. And there's a culture there of cleaning up after yourself and leaving the machine like you found it. So I think that has a lot to do with, like I said, the culture of the, the, the people there and also how it's managed. Mm -hmm. So I think it can go from that very, very nice experience to a very, very bad experience like you talking about. It's like all the machines, none of it's calibrated. None of it works right. You got to spend 20 minutes every time you walk up to a machine just to set it up because it's all buggered up. Yeah. I can see it. But then there's other places I'm sure you could go and everything is dialed in, ready to go. So I, I, I think that if you do go to a, a, a shared maker space like that, just ask, take a look at the equipment, see what kind mm -hmm. of condition it's in. Go over to the table saw, you know, bring a tape measure with you. Go mm -hmm. over to the table saw and set it at five and three sixteenths of an inch on the scale and see if the fence is five and three sixteenths from the blade. Mm -hmm. If it's not, I mean, that's a pretty good indication that stuff's not taken care of. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, Sean, what what do you think about this? Have you ever looked into it? No, I I'm only aware of one makerspace near me. Um, and there's a couple of things, questions that I have that we don't have the answers to that Mark didn't let us know. He's losing access to his current workshop forever or for just six months. If it's forever, obviously that would change my answer and I would look at a, a dedicated space. If it's for a few months, while you're moving or something, then I would look yeah. at a makerspace. I think that's going to determine my answer. Mm -hmm. But having said that, there's pros and cons to a makerspace like you all discussed. The one near me has the 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 woodworking uh, tools, that table saw and all that stuff. I don't know how many woodworking tools, but they do have woodworking tools there, table saw and all that stuff. But one of the cool things about being able to go to a makerspace like this is you're going to have access to a lot more tools that you don't have yourself, a CNC router, CNC plasma table at the one that I'm looking at that's near us, 3D printers, metal shop tools, welder. Yeah. So you're going to have access to that kind of stuff um, in addition to the woodworking tools. So that's a pro or a plus rather. Um, you know, it's going to be probably cheaper than renting your own place. That's a plus. The cons, obviously, like you all have talked about, stuff being out of alignment and having to take your lumber with you when you leave and come back the next time and all that stuff, mm -hmm. unless mm -hmm. that you can pay extra for a place to store it, you're probably going to have to take it back with you. So if you're building something, you know, substantial, like a dresser or something, that's going to be a pain in the butt versus renting, uh, you know, a 400 square foot uh, facility for you to put your tool, your current tools in. Um, I'm guessing just by reading this that, you're losing access to your current workshop, two-car garage. Okay, so you're not getting rid of your tools. You're 
you're just looking to move them elsewhere. So th- if that's the case, then I wouldn't even look at a, a, uh, maker space. Yeah. yeah. Just find you, find you some space. And I was gonna say, around here, we have a crap ton of, like I call them industrial parks. Mm-hmm. And well, this is pre pandemic. This is actually about five or six years ago. I was thinking of actually moving my shop into one of those because you can find them for as little as 50 cents a square foot. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, they had a lot of, I looked at a lot of them and they were, if you were lucky, you could find some for between 750 and 1,000 square feet. You know, it's like four or 500 bucks a month. The thing is, it's really not that bad. It's not but the bad thing is, you have to build them out. Yeah, yeah. So that, it probably won't have the electricity needs you you have to have, and you know yeah. you got to do all that stuff. And you know they're they're not paying for it; you are, and you're you're building their investment. But besides that, that's with any rental space. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's that's an op, that's an option too to look at something to look for something like that. I don't know what the prices are now with real estate the way it is, but real yeah. estate's going to crash again here real soon. That's yeah. right. So they might be able P- to get it cheap. Peter Galbert, uh, he's a chairmaker in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and he actually his studio is in one of those like it's not an industrial park. It's kind of like what we have here, Low Mill, the paper mill that got uh, reconstituted as an artist space. Uh, and he's at the Salmon Falls Mills, and I only know that because I actually looked at looked at possibly taking a class from him. But uh, yeah, that what they have is pretty neat too. It's is very similar, and it's uh, it's an old industrial mill that uh, they converted into artist studios, and and that's where his his studio is. But you're absolutely right, uh, guy. A lot of times they're just an e- empty uh, canvas, and if you need two twenty, you know, you're going to have to hire an electrician or do you do it yourself, and you know, run that run the line from wherever their, you know, electrical panel is and, and good luck. So it's on you, but well, uh, I hope that helped. Uh, and, uh, good luck there. Uh, with that, we're going to talk about our latest sponsor. And this episode is brought to you by shaper tools, maker of shaper origin. Shaper origin is an intuitive handheld CNC router that brings digital precision to the craft of woodworking. Working with Origin is simple. You steer the Origin while it makes the necessary real-time adjustments to ensure clean, accurate results. With its easy-to-use touchscreen interface, you can quickly create designs on the spot or upload existing project plans. It's small enough that you can use Origin in the shop or take it with you on the job site. With Origin, traditional workflows become easier and more reliable. Tackle joinery, cabinetry, hardware installation, and more with speed and precision. Learn more about Shaper Origin at shapertools.com forward slash woodshop. As an added bonus, you can try it risk-free in your shop for 30 days. Upgrade your workshop today at shapertools.com forward slash woodshop. All right, and we're back again to Guy. Okay. Uh, This comes from Chris. And it says, hey, guys, love the podcast, and thank you for all you guys do. I made a dining room table for my sister-in-law about a month ago. The table is made out of hard maple, and it's three three and a half feet wide by eight feet long. And I noticed when I first bought the board that there were some very small hairline cracks at the very ends of the boards. That's a very common thing, Chris. That's called checking. Yes. After I glued up, I was able to square up the table by cutting the end that had the worst cracks completely off. Unfortunately, I did not have enough material to completely eliminate them from the other end. So instead, I cut as much as I could from the other end and filled the remaining hairline cracks with plastic wood glue filler. Hmm. This seems to have uh, remedied the problem. I then finished the table with four to five coats of water-based poly, achieving a nice thick coat of finish. Now, about a month later, my sister-in-law is showing me spots where the hairline cracks are reappearing. Curiously enough, they're reappearing them from both ends, too. My question is multi-layered. 
First, is this cause for concern? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the, the cracks are very small and not easily noticed <clears throat> unless you look very closely. However, with these, will these cracks continue to grow over the years? Second, given how small these cracks are now, how can I go about re repairing this issue? I don't know if Fencier glue will help with the issue or simply act as a band-aid, and I don't believe these cracks are large enough to allow thin epoxy to seep into them. Any helpful advice you, you guys could give would be much appreciated. Chris. Yeah, Chris, um, typically you have to cut off all the checking on the ends of the boards. But let's say you cut all the checking off and you build a tabletop and it continues to split on the ends, that's telling me that the wood was not completely dry or wasn't dried properly if, it, if it's still checking on the ends, which is a definite possibility. If there's small hairline cracks and they're barely noticeable, I don't see what the problem is, to be honest with you. If it's a crack that, you know, food is falling into and you can't, you know, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's causing you problems. Well, well, then that's a problem. And the only thing you can really do for something like that is clean them out as best as you can uh, and maybe fill them with epoxy. Yeah. If they're still pretty thin, you can actually take the epoxy and sometimes on, I'll, I'll do it, I'll, I'll take epoxy and I use a sheet of paper. Mm. to get it in the cracks. Uh, okay. That works too. But filling it with plastic wood filler, I don't think is, uh, the plastic wood, the, the name brand filler, I don't think is strong enough. Yeah, yeah. I've used penetrating epoxy, which is a very thin epoxy, to get into that hairline crack just to help stabilize it. But I'm very much like you, uh, I believe the same thing, Guy. If, if it's a hairline crack and it remains a hairline crack and it's not expanding at all, I don't think you're really going to have to worry that much other than trying to fill that in, again, with the penetrating epoxy or very thin epoxy or with the technique that Guy mentioned with the paper uh, just to ensure that you're not going to get any debris in there as the table is being used. And I think I think that's that would be exactly what I would do. Um, Sean, any suggestions? Have you dealt with the, these types of hairline cracks and, and what'd you do to try to alleviate it? Cut the ends off the board. Yeah, um, no. <laughs> I'm guessing that what you all said is, is perfect and spot on. Uh, I'm guessing what happened is since this is a tabletop, the boards are eight foot long. Chris just didn't have enough length on the lumber he had. So he took a yeah. chance with the full length of the boards yeah. and wasn't able to cut much off. And that's, you know, unfortunate having an eight foot long tabletop, that means you got to go with some probably 10 foot long boards or nine foot long boards if you can get them. But typically yeah. a little over eight feet is about standard in my neck of the woods for that stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Which, yeah, you got to cut it off because no, it's, there's it's, nothing. It's, it's hard maple and it's very easy to find very long, hard maple boards. Well, apparently Chris was having issues finding very long boards. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't find very long maple boards where I live in the places I go. They're all, really? yeah, they're all eight feet. There may be one place that has it now that I've got a new, I got a new hookup for that. So there may be one place that has longer boards, mm -hmm. uh, but I don't know if they have them rough is the thing. I think they're 13 sixteenths if they do have it, but and either it's way. Framing, that's material for face frames. Right. They may yeah. have that. So mm -hmm. I don't think I can get it rough, but either way, um, yeah, it's 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 going to be tough without, you know, because I think it's going to continue to be an issue until it, you know, the the moisture and all that stuff of the lumber levels out, but a guys right it's the drying process caused that issue most likely. And what they said is probably what I would do, look at an epoxy, mm -hmm. see if you can get it in there and dry it and hope that it helps other than that, you got to cut it off. Yeah, the other thing is it's it's hard maple and hard maple is very, very unstable. I mean, it moves a lot. It twists, mm -hmm. it bends. When you cut it, there's a lot of tension in it. Yes. It's just notorious to try to get flat. We we deal with a lot of hard maple where I work. Mm -hmm. And we're making, you know, 12-foot, 14-foot tabletops out of that stuff. And <laughs> they're just, they're always a nightmare. 
you know, we'll get an order for 20 of them. It's like everybody goes, uh, uh, <laughs> because we mill the stuff up. And if you don't, you know, glue it up right away, it just twists and warps and does all kinds of crazy stuff within a day. Yeah. Um, but have there is noticed- a problem with hard maple and checking and stuff like that. So, Have you noticed as much with soft maple as opposed to hard maple? We, I, I use... When I'm, whenever I've, for maybe about the last 10 years, every time I've made something out of maple, it's always been soft maple. Okay. Which is still pretty damn hard. Oh, gosh, but, yes. But it's a different color. It's not mm-hmm. like a white color. Mm-hmm. It's got, it's more of a tan color and it's got more grain in it typically. But it, it's, it's much more stable and it's much easier to work with. Yeah. I've tried to get soft maple as as often as I can yeah. over or the soft or the hard maple. Yeah. All right. I mean, yeah. I was, oh, sorry, say, I was just going to say, there's not a whole lot you can do, Chris. I mean, yeah. Sean said, cut it up, cut the stuff off, but obviously you can't do that. The, I guess the, the silver line to this is all, all of this is that it's your sister-in-law and it's not a, a, a customer out in the, out in the field somewhere. Yeah. So she'll probably be a little bit more um, agreeable to whatever fix you can apply yeah. to it. My, my my recommendation is what I first said. If they're not that noticeable, don't point them out. <laughs> <laughs> and and just, you know, try to forget about them and just say, well, that's the way it is. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're limited, going to be limited to fixing what you, what you got now yeah. with the epoxy and sand it and refinish it. And then uh, you've learned a valuable lesson. If you see them in the future, yeah. cut it off as far back as you can or avoid that board and go with another one. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Cool. Well, I think I've got the next one. Yes, you do. This is from Bob. Love the show and appreciate what all of you contribute to the woodworking community. I've been a hobbyist woodworker for a long time. And though my projects are not fine furniture or winning any awards, I truly enjoy time in the shop and making simple things for friends and family. My question is about finishing. I hate finishing so much that I feel guilty sometimes that my project truly never gets really or never gets really gets completed, even though it's gifted away. I justify to myself that I'm letting the new owner finish it to their preferences, but it's really (laughs) that I hate that step. I've done spray-on, rattle can, shellac, poly, cheap spray paint, bry wax, and rubbed on some polyurethane, but I'd like to venture out a little further without the fear of ruining my hard work. Any suggestions on how to take the next step without jumping in over my head? I have sanders, planers, all the usual finishing tools, but I'm basically lazy. Thanks, Bob. Wow. This is a, this is a good question. Could have replaced his name with mine about five or six years ago. I'm still lazy, though. Um, well, there's a couple of different ways to approach this. I'm, I'm going to take it from the, from the perspective of let's talk about your current issues with finishing. And then I'll let Guy and Hui talk about maybe how to take that next step and, and to venture off into something else. Cause there's a couple different things to talk about, but you know, finishing isn't the easiest thing to learn when you're a hobbyist because you don't have, you don't have the dedicated hours out in the shop to, to master a technique. It can get extremely frustrating. Um, you know what the, Bob, what I would say at the beginning of this is, you know, I would find a finish that you can lay down with great results and master it uh, in the sense that you have a tried and true method to protect the piece that you can keep going back to and you know how to lay it down on that good finish. Um, With that being said, I'd recommend uh, that being a wipe on oil based poly. It's it's about as easy as that you can get. Um, I'd recommend, you know, like the wipe on wipe off method. I know some of the cans say wipe on and leave it. Some of the cans say wipe on and wipe off, but I recommend starting with the wipe on wipe off method. And this is going to require more coats since you're leaving a thinner coat, but you won't have to fight with the potential streaks. If you put a coat down too heavy in certain areas and, and too thin in others, uh, cause streaking is a, is, 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 is an issue with, with, uh, oil-based polys, depending on the sheen level that you choose. And if you stare it and all that stuff, wipe it on, wipe it off. That's going to make it a little bit easier for you. Um, as far as brands, I, you know, I like the Minwax fast drying wipe on oil-based poly. It's available anywhere and it's a, it's a pretty good product. Uh, I do like general finishes armor still a little bit better. Um, but it's a 25 minute drive. So I'm sticking with the Minwax wipe on poly. 
Um, sand at 220 with your orbital sander by hand. Try not to skip grits. Go from 120 up to 220. Uh, on the end grain, I like to sand one level higher so that it uh, you know absorbs and looks and similar to the other edges and top of the board and the bottom. So I go up one one grit a little bit higher on the uh, on the end grain. Remove the dust from with the shop vac. Wipe the coat of poly on. Wipe it back off with a clean towel. Let it dry for a few hours. Rinse and repeat for probably two coats. Next, you can sand with the foam back paper. This is just my preference. That's around 400 grit to remove any nibs, remove the dust, apply another coat. And this is basically what you're going to continue doing until it has the sheen and the protection that you like. Again, since you're doing a wipe on wipe off method, you'll probably have to put, you know, six coats on a, on a tabletop to protect it. And then maybe three to four on the base for it to look good. Um, you know, wiping the poly off before it dries also helps prevent too much of the dust sticking to the surface because it's going to dry faster than a thicker coat that you leave on the surface. There are some folks that wipe on, wipe off, some folks that wipe on and leave it on there and they don't touch it. Um, both, both methods will work, but I think the key for this part of it, and before I pass as a guy in Hui to talk about how to advance your, uh, techniques and stuff on, on future finishes that you've not yet discovered is you need to have a go-to finishing technique that you can count on because it's stressful when it comes to that time you spend countless hours building something and you're like, crap, now I got to finish it. And I hate finishing it. Having something that you can go to that's stress-free is uh, you're going to benefit from it. And, you know, I recommend getting a good sample board, finish the top and the edges completely, go through this entire regimen and then flip it over and start over. So you have two really good examples to, to practice and get this technique down. Um, but that's a good wipe on poly method. You know, we do the us, three of us also have love using shellac in this type of method. Obviously you don't wipe shellac off, but you know, a good tried and true method of applying finish to protect it. That's easy that you can count on, but that's my recommendation. We now, how can Bob take that next step without jumping in over his head on evolving his, uh, finishing arsenal? Sean, I had actually contacted you over the weekend to ask you about some uh, water-based stains that I was ex- stains that I was experimenting with, and also uh, water-based uh, polyurethane. I- I've never applied a water-based stain and po- water-based polyurethane. I've applied water-based polyurethane, but I've always sprayed it. Uh, but spraying, you know, it requires significant, you know, expensive turbine or a conversion gun and whatnot. And you've got to mask things off or not, excuse me, use drop cloths, things like that. So uh, I actually tried the uh, foam brush method that you had told me about. And it actually came out looking really nice. It was very easy to apply. And the required tools to apply is very inexpensive. You know, foam brushes are not that expensive. One thing that you did warn me about uh, Sean, and uh, I took that to heart. And, and thankfully, I did not do that. Is uh, because it dries so fast that you can't really go over it multiple times with that foam brush. You kind of just you go over it once. Yeah, you you don't you don't you don't want to go over it again. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you just, try to avoid that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it came out very smooth. Uh, so I applied one, uh, one coat lightly sanded with 320, just, you know, with fingertip pressure, uh, vacuumed it off and then went over again with a second coat and it looks right. Perfect. Not no streaks, nice and level and fairly easy to apply. So, uh, thanks, Sean. You kind of gave me, uh, the information on that. And, and I, I would say that, uh, it's a fairly easy method. You just got to know that you can't go over it twice. You, know, you lay it down and you leave it alone. That's kind of, you know, pretty, pretty simple in my book. So cool. Um, Glad to help. Well, yeah, man. Sean, Sean said exactly what, when I first heard this question, exactly what came to my mind, mm-hmm. which is use a, a wiping oil-based poly. It's very easy to do. It's, basically the most idiot proof finish you can put on mm-hmm. and believe me i'm an idiot <laughs> so doing it that way is a very very easy but it it it's not labor intensive but it's time intensive it takes days for that stuff to you know put like four or five coats on you're looking you know if you if you want to you're gonna have to go out there every day for five or six days because you have to give it 24 hours between coats. 
And then well, Sean's going, oh, I'll talk about water-based. Well, okay. <laughs> we hit that one. So, yeah, water-based using a foam brush, it's works really, really well. Uh, water-based poly flattens really nice by itself. It dries fairly quickly, so there's not as many uh, dust nibs in it. You have to make sure that you, before you put it on, two things. First of all, you need to wet the wood down and sand it back. Very good point, yes. So you need to pre-raise the grain. And I always pre-raise the grain twice before I put down water-based shellac or water-based or if I spray water-based stuff, I'll always raise the grain first and just sand it back a little bit. The other thing about water-based finishes is they don't have the look of an oil-based finish. In other words, they're typically water white. What that means is it's totally clear and will not affect the color of the wood. So for example, you do not want to take a piece of walnut and put water-based finish right over the top of it because it won't add anything to the color. It won't impart any uh, amber tones to the wood like oil will. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look real good, in other <clears throat> words. Right. Um, that's the other thing to consider. Now, you can get some of that look by using something like uh, uh, even shellac will work. But you can do that, and it'll it'll change the color of the wood a little bit better, make it look a little bit nicer. Mm -hmm. So that's that's the other thing you do. If you want to up your game to the next level and you hate finishing, I would probably recommend getting a good spray gun. Mm. And I have found that the water-based conversion varnishes and the water-based lacquers mm -hmm. work extremely well. Very, very, it's the easiest thing I've ever sprayed. I need to get to that point. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, but it's easy to spray, Sean. You just set it down, you just lay down a nice, you know, it doesn't have to be, a, it's not like a super heavy coat, but a nice light coat of it. And it dries in like 20 minutes. Yeah. Because <laughs> you're putting down such a thin coat and you can, you, I, I've put, like four or five coat, four coats on, maybe five coats on in a day. Yeah. With that stuff. So I'll lay a coat down. I'll wait about an hour and then I'll sand, I put another coat down, wait about an hour, and I don't do any sanding at all until the second coat. And what I'm typically using to sand it down is all, I, I use like a, a 500, and I actually have a thousand grit one too. Uh, fest tool foam back pads. They call them like oh. plantine or something, plantine or something like that. I plantine. love those. Yeah, I know. That's why I said it's not a plantine. Uh, but I think it's like platin or plantine or something like that. It's mm -hmm. for cars. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I get any dust nibs off of that and I spray it another twice, another two coats, usually four coats, I'm done. And you can and do that in a day? Yep. Oh man, that's nice. Yeah. It's really nice. And uh, it does impart a little bit of color. It's like that oil infused water based poly, which doesn't really do anything. I'd yeah. avoid that stuff like the plague. But um, it works really well. So, yeah. might want to try that. And it's easy. One, Even I can do it. One last thing I will say about the water based poly do not shake the can. You don't, yeah. want to, you don't want to create bubbles. No bubbles. Stir it. Stirred, not shaken. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. yeah be like James Bond. A lot of people. No, he wanted shaken, not stirred. Shaken, not stirred. Yep. A yeah, lot of people shake that. that can and then they use a foam brush <laughs> and then they're like, oh my God, <laughs> foam brush sucks. All the bubbles everywhere. All the bubbles, yeah. You, I mean, you're going to get bubbles. You're going to see them, but hopefully the finish is you know good enough quality that it'll level out, but you don't want to shake the can and create more bubbles, stir it, and, you know, be very careful with it. Now, something I did when I was doing the uh, water-based stain method that you had uh, told me about, Sean, is uh, I, I sanded after I put down the pre-stain conditioner, and then I put down the stain, 
and then I wiped off, and then I put down the uh, water-based poly. Should I should I have uh, sanded after I put down the water-based stain? I, I, no. I would be afraid. No, you don't. Okay, so yeah. the process that I did was correct. Sound is sounded correct to me. Yeah, you definitely don't want to sand after stain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah. I knew not to do that, but I wanted to make sure that sanding after the water-based conditioner was the proper thing. Very lightly, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yep, mm -hmm. lightly is the name even after that. Yep, yep, yep. Gotcha. Water base is a little is a little tricky. There's some rules you got to follow on that stuff. Yeah, but it's it's not as tricky. I think I think shellac is easy. I mm -hmm. think it's easy, but a lot of people have a lot of problems with it. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. It's it really isn't you. There is a lot. There's a lot of finesse to it. Yeah, um, but the, as far as easy idiot proof goes, you can't go wrong with an oil based wipe on wipe poly. On like armor seal or the uh, minwax stuff Sean was talking about. I use both. Or you can make it yourself. All that is is regular polyurethane and it's thinned. So mm -hmm. you can take regular po polyurethane and do a 50-50 blend with some naphtha. Mm -hmm. And you'll get about the same thing. Yeah. So. All right. Uh, I have the last question and this question is from Nick. He says, hi, guys and guy. <laughs> uh, love the show. Preemptive congratulations on episode 100. Well, actually, Nick, you made it to episode 100. So thank you very much. <laughs> I made a slatted bench out of red oak, but I'm questioning how I want to finish it. The bench is from Steve Ramsey's course and can be seen here. And so he leaves a, a link to it. Because of the slats, which are about three quarters of an inch wide and two and a half inches deep, getting finished down there with a sprayer would be impossible. So I think I want to do something like a wipe on, um, creating my own simple finish of equal parts, spar urethane, mineral spirits and boiled linseed oil. So similar to Danish oil that I've wiped on to other projects with success, but not sure if there may be other options that I should consider. This is a gift for my parents and will live inside probably by their patio door for them to sit on, sit down on to put on their shoes. Also, if I go the handmade Danish oil route, any suggestions on how many coats to apply and what to do between coats? Keep up the great podcast. Thank you. Well, we, we talked about a very similar kind of finish not too long ago, uh, as in the last question. So uh, <laughs> I did not know, Sean, that was going to be your question. But uh, I see nothing wrong with what he's doing in terms of making his own quote unquote Danish oil. I've not used spar urethane to thin out to a wiping varnish of sorts. Have any of you guys done that? I've never used spar urethane as a wipe to create a wiping poly. Do you see any issues with that with this in this case? I've never used it for thinning it. And if it's living inside, I'm not sure why you chose spar urethane. Well, he's saying here that, yeah, it is in the inside, but it's on the by their patio door. So maybe he's a little worried about some moisture coming in or something okay. like that. I can't imagine. But yeah, um, and, and being maybe around shoes, I don't know. Um, wet shoes or things like that. I, I don't know. But I can't. I. Uh, I would think that, yeah, spar urethane is fine, but I can't think of any reason why it wouldn't be fine being mixed with mineral spirits and boiled linseed oil. But in terms of what I would use for this sort of situation, hard to reach places to apply finish, absolutely, I'd do a wipe on finish. And I would put down two or three coats and then stand in between coats after the second coat. Because that first coat is just going to absorb really, really most nice. of that finish. Guy, what do you think about? I've used. I don't. I've don't make outdoor projects. Mm -hmm. um, I have made something. I made a uh, a watering stone station kind of thing, and I used spar urethane on that from a rattle can, and mm -hmm. you know it worked really, really well. Um, I don't, if you're, let's say if this was an outdoor piece of furniture, which again, it doesn't sound like it is, but if it was an outdoor piece of furniture, 
and you're going to use spar ura, the, the, the spar urethane. I don't know why you'd want to turn it into a Danish oil to begin with. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think in this case, if you're wanting to make it a Danish oil, why not just use regular polyurethane? polyurethane. Yeah. Right. I, I don't know. And I, I'm not saying that a smart ass thing. I just, I just don't know mm-hmm. because I'm, I, I couldn't tell you. I, I don't know why I would, if I'm thinking outdoors, I would just use a spar urethane. I wouldn't even think of thinning it. Is he doing right. it to add the linseed oil to impart a tone to it on top of the spar urethane? I don't know. I don't know. I, I can't, I guess. But again, but it's red oak. You know, so, I mean, yeah. 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 I'd skip it and just stick with spar urethane. Okay. So then the next part of his question, how many coats? Well, if you're, if you're doing a wipe on type, finish i would say more than three coats i mean i'm, I'm typically doing like five six coats yeah but it um, depends on how thin you're putting it on too if he's mm. doing the wipe on wipe off yeah that's uh, typically what i yeah it depends on yeah it depends on his method if he's if he's sticking it on there and leaving it on there yeah it's it's dependent on how thin i usually put it on pretty thin just because i'm trying to get it as smooth as possible from the get-go. And I, I mean, I'm uh, for, for the dining table, the maple dining table, which is just a wipe on poly that I put on was five, six coats this is a good bit. I'd say, yeah, five or six, just because if he, if, if Nick is concerned about them coming in wet, setting down on it to take their shoes off. And it, it, I mean, if you're wiping on wiping off the thinner coats, six isn't going to hurt anything. Yeah. The more the merry. Yeah. What are your thoughts, guy? I'd, I'd say that's that's five or six. Okay. Nice. Right. Look at that. We all agree. <laughs> well, I think <laughs> that wraps up the questions for the show. Uh, let's talk about what we got going on in our shops. Uh, guy, I'm going to, since we kicked it off with you being first question, so we'll uh, kick it off for uh, you being the first one to tell us what you got going on. Well, in my own shop, nothing. <laughs> but uh, at work, I just finished these. I thought they would be easy to make, man. They just kicked my ass. That, these Lego boards. Which oh, is, yeah, uh, I saw those. They're six feet long, four feet high, like well, four and a half feet high. And it's just a big framed piece of plywood that rolls around on some casters. And we're going to attach some. Uh, Lego, 10-inch Lego panels to the, to the thing. And it's for a school somewhere. And, so what uh, made it difficult? Oh, all the, all the miters and getting mm. it. You can't. And the thing that was really tough was attaching the tray. The tray that sits under the plywood is like eight inches from each end. You can't clamp it. Mm. Oh, we didn't okay. have any clamps to do that. And, and the, the, the tray is only three inches wide so you can't get screws in it either mm, okay so it was just it was just a pain um finished that and we've been i a couple weeks ago i had made like oh, i had a marathon session and i was by my, by myself for about a week and a half and i built like 10 or 12 cabinets mm-hmm. and uh, they just came back from started coming back from finishing monday or tuesday and they, they pretty much all showed up today. So I started putting all those together, which is, you know, installing the drawers, installing the doors, things like that. I always, I always do all the installation of hardware after it's been finished. Mm-hmm. But that's about it for now. Sean, what do you got going on, man? Finished the miter station. Um, got to edit that video. Took me oh, forever. Nice. Um, yeah. I'm going to be working on probably a Raspberry Pi project. I've not done that in a while. Um, nice. I'm going to get back into that. Do a couple. Where are you of those going to get the things. Raspberry Pi from? Or do you have one? Oh, I've when, <laughs> I've got a few of them. When I've yeah. all those other projects, I'll just rob one. And uh, but now I have like three or four of them. But yeah, I hear there's an issue in getting those. So no, you can't. You well, you can get them for like a hundred and fifty dollars a piece. That's insane. Yeah. That yep. is crazy. Thirty five dollar. Board. Yeah, I've got like three or four of them too. 
I feel very fortunate. Yeah. I'm he, sorry to interrupt a, you. Sorry. No, that's fine. So that, that's what I'm going to be working on next. Um, just doing some funner projects to, uh, that I've not done in a while that I've been wanting to do for quite a while, but, um, work has been keeping me busy and I've just not had any time in the shop. I mean, these cabinets should have taken me half of the time it, that it did, but you know, that's life, but I'm I'll be, you having fun doing it though. Having fun doing what? Building the cabinets. Yeah. The house yeah. Well, that's the, all uh, that matters. the veneer drawer front side of Walnut look amazing. Um, edge banding looks amazing walnut edge banding around it um it, it looks great nice um so you know is what it is but that's what i got going on wait what do you got going on that's the question well i finally finished the double dresser that i've been working on in like the last four months took longer than it should have but it it client is really happy with it it was uh it's a maple plywood panels for the carcass and then um, hardwood, uh, face frames and drawers and, you know, full extension, uh, undermount drawer slides. And, uh, I ended up spraying, uh, target coatings, the M tech, uh, pigmented lacquer. Mm -hmm. Uh, and that stuff is awesome. That stuff is awesome. Have you tried the primer? Yeah, man, that stuff is really thick for, for my gun. It was, I had to thin it. Have you, did you thin no, it? I didn't, I didn't thin it. Didn't thin it. That's what. So, did you just end up using like a really large tip or what? I don't the, remember. It's problem. been a while. The last time I did, when I did my cabinets, I used Centurion. Okay. Okay. Because uh, that was recommended to me by Eric Reason. Yeah. And he the, actually put me in touch with those people, and they 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 sent it to me. Nice. nice. <laughs> the the. But it worked really well. Yeah, the primer was was quite thick and i had to well, i've used uh, hard for because i did a couple doors inside my house with it and i didn't have okay a problem. i i had to thin i had to thin the primer now the the pigmented lacquer pigmented water what conversion varnish water-based conversion varnish i can't remember what it's it is conversion varnish right the pigmented stuff the the pure white, white. stuff yep yep perfect not a problem spraying it at all it went on wonderfully mm -hmm. But it was one of those situations that I got a little too cocky at the end and I was drilling to put in the drawer fronts, you know, the drawer front screws along the perimeter. And I knew as I was drilling, I was like, I, I really should put a stop collar on this thing because, you know, I'm just going to be I'm going to be stupid. I'm going to drill through the drawer front. I know I'm going to do this. Nah, I'll be fine. Uh -oh. I, I know where to stop. Uh -oh. that's, that's, that's called hubris. Yes. And six drawers, five of them, no issue. Got them attached, put them in there, looking great. The last hole of the last drawer front, somehow I went through the front of it. Mm. And I was like, I know exactly I, how you did it. <laughs> you I, you I drove too coffee. far. <laughs> you drove too far. Yeah, no, I know exactly how I did it. this episode, 10 seconds. I know exactly yeah. how I did it. The point is, is that I, you know, I, I, I got to the finish line and then that happened. So then I had to sand it back. I had to fill the hole and I had to spray again. Uh, that one, that one drawer front. Thankfully it's, you know, it's not too big. How big was the hole? Oh, it was like, I don't know. Um, Three sixteenths. Yeah. Something like that. I can't remember what it's like a number eight. Screw, I think, is what I used. Depending on where that drawer is going to go, let's say it's on the bottom, mm -hmm. I might have tried to fill it with a, like a wax stick. Yeah, I could have done that. I probably should have done that, but I just, I just sanded it back and I filled it with, with spackle and then yeah. sprayed over it. Yeah, I dig that. I dig that. Mm -hmm. That's a much more permanent thing. But I'm just thinking quick and easy. And if it's I know. In a spot where I know. Nobody's really going to see it. But I delivered it, and man, that thing is stinking heavy. It was a, a bear to to get into this woman's house uh, because you know you deliver it, and of course the hallway has got a right corner here, and then this thing has got a right corner here. So we had to tilt it up on its on its end 
uh, and put it on. Uh, Who is we? Um, yeah, a friend of yours or um, my father-in-law? Or? He's okay. my father-in-law is my assistant. He doesn't get paid much, but <laughs> you don't get paid. At <laughs> he's all. a huge. My father-in-law is a huge help. He's got a gigantic truck and he's got a really nice 12 foot aluminum trailer and whatnot. He's, he's been such a huge help. He, he to gets me paid with grandkids. Okay. He, right. Yeah, Time with right. the grandkids. <laughs> um, and then I made a sample board. I made a sample board for another client um, out of uh, stained uh, red oak and it, you know, that water-based stain come, it works pretty well. Yeah. Uh, Sean, I like it. So, okay. Anyway, that's what I've got going on. I think that wraps up this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have woodworking questions, please send it through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife and make sure that when you send your questions, please send your name. Uh, and we would also like to thank everyone who has left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we truly appreciate the support and feedback. And guys, thank you so much for, you know, we're at our 100th episode That's and great. we hope to uh, do a, another 100 more. And, you know, from from me to you guys, and I think I speak uh, to uh, for, on behalf of uh, Sean and Guy, we've really greatly appreciated all the support that we've gotten. And, yeah, you know, this 100 episode has been. It's humbling. Yes, it really, truly is. So it's hard to believe. You can reach me. It is hard to believe. So I can't believe it. It's been what, like almost four years, hasn't it? Yeah. Very close. Wow. Yeah. Well, you can reach me at alabamawoodworker.com. All the links to my social media on my website. Guy, where can we find you? Um, pretty much all my social media is under Guy's Woodshop. So if you go YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and just search for Guy's Woodshop, you'll find me. All right. And Sean, where can you be found? At Simple Cove on Instagram and YouTube and simplecove.com. All right. Well, great. Thanks for listening and uh, hope to talk to you guys in a couple weeks and another hundred more episodes. That's right. right. Talk to you soon. See you later. See ya.